This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. A'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem Ya bani israel adhkuru ni'mati allati an'amtu alaykum wa awfu bi'ahdi awfi bi'ahdikum wa iyaya farhabun wa aminu bima anzaltu musaddiqan lima ma'akum wa la takunu awwala kafirin bih وَلَا تَشْتَرُوا بِآيَاتِي ثَمَنًا قَلِيلًا وَإِيَّايَ فَاتَّقُونَ وَلَا تَلْبِسُوا الْحَقَّ بِالْبَاطِلِ وَتَكْتُمُوا الْحَقَّ وَأَنْتُمْ تَعْلَمُونَ رَبِّ اشْرَحْ لِي صَدْرِي وَيَسِّرْ لِي أَمْرِي وَاحْلُلْ عُقْدَةً مِنْ لِسَانِي يَفْقَهُ قَوْلِي الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم اجعلنا منهم ومن الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر آمين يا رب العالمين Once again everyone, السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته From the 40th ayah to about 121 A long section of Surah Al-Baqarah is dedicated to the children of Israel Bani Israel and it seems like a jump from the last story that we just heard that was the story of Adam alayhi salam. So my first job today is to first help remind myself and to remind all of you and to maybe help share some insights with you about the placement of this long narrative that is actually not even in chronological order. What that means is lots of things happen with the children of Israel. Allah will mention some of them that happened later, earlier. And some of the things that happened earlier, later, so it's not actually in a chronological kind of order. The goal behind the, the narrative is something else. It's not just a telling of a Jewish history, but rather something else. So the first thing that I want to share with you is just taking a step back. Allah Azza wa Jal gave Adam alayhi salam a special favor that he had not given any other creation on this earth. Rather, uh, or not on this earth, rather, but in all of creation. When he says, Inna aradna al-amana, like he mentioned in Surah Al-Ahzab, we, we handed over the trust, the responsibility. This responsibility was so huge, as we saw in the story of Adam alayhi salam along with the angels, that even the angels were skeptical if he's going to be able to carry this responsibility. But after being demonstrated that he is capable of it, he was given that honor of even ranking above the angels. And usjudu li Adam, the commandment was given. Now Allah Azza wa Jal has given this human being something that has never been given to a creature, you know, creature, and he's been empowered with things that have never been empowered before us. We learned about knowledge. Allah Azza wa Jal gave Adam alayhi salam knowledge. And on that note, one thing I didn't highlight to you is something extremely, extremely critical. And that will, if only if you understand that, will this make sense then. There were two kinds of knowledge that were spoken about with Adam alayhi salam. First of all, we saw Allama Adam al Asma'a kullaha. He taught Adam the names of all kinds of things, and from it we extrapolated that, you know, in this world, Every science, every field of human inquiry boils down to definitions and those definitions were built upon the definitions that came for the intellectuals and thinkers from the generation before to the generation before to the generation before. Meaning every field of human inquiry today, every science that exists today, every subject that exists today boils down to definitions that are built upon the past. And they all go back to that first set of definitions that was given to Adam alayhi salam, you could summarize all of that as knowledge of this world. Knowledge of this world. But then as Adam alayhi salam was coming on this earth, Allah gave him a second warning, rather a second bit of instruction and said, فَإِمَّا يَأْتِيَنَّكُمْ مِنِّي هُدًا Then if ever knowledge comes to you from me, and it can only come from me, and that's the one that will keep you from fear and grief. We talked about that quite exhaustively. So you can say there's knowledge of this world, worldly knowledge, that Adam alayhi salam has been given, and we're all beneficiaries of that knowledge. And on the other hand, he was given revealed knowledge. He was given revealed knowledge. So now there's two kinds of knowledge. Knowledge that human beings can inquire, search, seek, study in a university, explore, figure things out in a laboratory. That's the kind of knowledge that is the extension of worldly knowledge. Acquired knowledge. You can even call it acquired knowledge. Because it keeps on building, it, you know, the acquisition of it keeps on compounding on what came before, right? So the science of today would not be possible if the science of yesterday did not exist, right? It can only move forward in this way, okay? But on the other hand, there is a kind of knowledge that is not researched. 
You can't, you can't ponder and research and acquire it. It can only come from the heavens. It can only come from Allah Azza wa Jal, delivered through angels. It's, it cannot be detected from a microscope. You're not going to be able to find it, you know, after doing a lot of pondering and thinking on your own. It can only come from Allah Azza wa Jal, and that's revealed knowledge. And revealed knowledge and, you know, you know acquired knowledge, they're two different branches of knowledge. And they're actually, in some sense, very distinctly different from each other because in acquired knowledge, for example, there's room for correction. Right? So what, as, as human beings explore something, they postulate based on it, for example, in the field of science, and they come up with a theory. And we think this is the dominant theory in how you know, uh, physics works. But then as the field of physics advances, new scientific discovery you know, leads to a different conclusion. And we say, you know, that was the best that we could have reached before, but now we know better. Now we're going to revisit what was said before, right? So when, when Newton was around, matter can neither be created nor destroyed became the dominant thinking of the scientific community. That matter is in a sense eternal. It can neither be created nor destroyed. But then comes along Einstein, you know, quite a bit later, and now the dominant theory is matter can be converted into energy. That matter is, in fact, something that can be created and is, in fact, something that can be destroyed. So, I mean, the world of physics completely changed. The world of science completely transformed. Acquired knowledge goes through changes. And human beings expect that the more we learn, the more it's going to get updated. The field of medicine will get updated. The field of telecommunications will get updated, right? The, all of these fields will advance in one way or the other as the years go by, as human research goes by. But then on the other side, there's a kind of knowledge that doesn't need updating because it's already timeless. It comes from a timeless source. It comes from Allah. And that, for example, the Qur'an. The Qur'an doesn't need an update. You know, your, your iOS needs an update. Technology needs an update. Programming code needs an update. Architectural standards might need an update. But revelation doesn't need an update. And what happens to the modern mind? The modern mind says... If you put it to me this way, then revealed knowledge seems kind of stagnant. It seems kind of set in its place. It belonged back then, 14, 1500 years ago when it was revealed. It was relevant for that time. But as time evolved, human beings have evolved in which kind of knowledge? Acquired knowledge. But you guys are still back there 1400 years ago. This hasn't updated. So I'd rather live in the modern world. I don't want to believe in this... Pre, you know, this archaic, pre-modern, ancient religious text that doesn't even see any updates. It's not even according to the times. This idea can only be perpetuated, or someone can only be convinced of this idea if they don't understand the difference between these two kinds of knowledge. When someone in the back of their mind actually thinks that the Qur'an is the product of the mind of Rasulullah wasallam, that he came up with it, he devised, he authored the Qur'an, these are his words. This is, the, this is a man named Muhammad, we say, sallallahu alayhi wa They don't. Those are his words. If you say that, or if there's something in the back of your mind that thinks that, then you're absolutely right. It should be updated. Because human, the best of human minds, whatever they produce, as humanity moves forward, every knowledge, every science, every wisdom updates. So this should be updated too. But if you've accepted that this comes from an eternal God, and it comes from the creator of the skies and the earth. And it comes from the one who knows the past just as much as he knows the future. Then you have it accepted that this book is actually timelessly applicable. It doesn't get outdated. It doesn't get, arch it doesn't get archaic. And this is a very important thing to understand about revelation. The Qur'an was, it's, it's several things at the same time. The Qur'an was revealed, you know, this millennium and a half ago in the middle of a desert. There was no advanced technology then. You couldn't talk about airplanes back then. You couldn't talk about you know, wireless communication. You couldn't talk about data, the way we talk about data or archiving data. You couldn't talk about these things back then. It was revealed to a people, as a matter of fact, of all the people Allah could have chosen in the world, it was revealed to a people that were probably in terms of science, technology, infrastructure, architecture, more backwards than anybody else. It was revealed in that region, <laughs> right? So even in terms of abstract philosophy, science, in any sense of the word, they, these people were behind everyone else on the planet. And yet Allah revealed His words to them. And He revealed it in a way that they can understand. 
that they can understand. And Allah gave examples that they can relate with. As a matter of fact, a lot of expressions in the Qur'an, a lot of Arabic in the Qur'an, a lot of the images in the Qur'an, are, they, they kind of bring about the imagery of the ancient desert. Which is another problem for a modern person. If the Qur'an is timeless, it should have been talking about things that I can relate with right now. Why is it giving me, حَتَّى يَلِجَ الْجَمَلُ فِي سَمِّ الْخِيَاطِ until the, ca- like the Qur'an's way of saying something is impossible is until the camel passes through the eye of a needle. Right? That's the Qur'an's way of saying it. But th- who does that relate with? Who can relate to that? You know who can relate to that? The Arabs back in the day, because they used to say, that ain't never gonna happen. I'm gonna see a camel pass through the eye of a needle before I see this guy get up and do some work. Or something. This was their way of saying absolutely impossible. Qur'an uses something that they could what? They could relate with, right? But then the criticism comes, well, they could relate with it, that doesn't mean that I can relate with it. I ain't never seen a camel. I don't even, I have a needle, that, doesn't that require stitching? I don't do stitching. I think my grandma used to do it or something. I can't relate with it. So how do we reconcile that? I'll put it simply for all of you, inshallah ta'ala, as, as best I can. And these are some of my own thoughts over the years, just thinking about the relevance of the Qur'an and the timeless nature of the Qur'an. You know, let me give you an example from science first. In the field of science, you have something called standards. Okay, so for example, measurements are done with standards. A centimeter is a standard, or here with the British system, for which reason the Americans follow the British system, I don't know. Uh, But we do. We don't follow the metric system. So we have inches and feet and yards, etc., etc. Right? An inch is a standard inch. A centimeter or a meter is a standard, you know, length. And what they do is they actually have, and I believe it's in Austria, if I'm not mistaken, they have the original meter with broken up centimeters and it's kept in a museum like all rulers in the world must meet the standard of that one that is the standard for all else you understand and that thing there is timeless it was made a long time ago it's archaic but it is timeless the thing is that's the that's the language of science and math it's very specific and you know quantitative but what about language let's think about language for a second was the English of the 80s different than the English of today? Just in the 80s. In America, let's not even talk about it anywhere else. In America, was English in the 80s different from how English is today? Sure. It's still English, but those same exact words have either become irrelevant, or if you use them, people will know how old you are. Right? Uh, because you made a reference to something that just that's way too retro for you to be making that reference right now. It's the same language, but it experienced what? Change. Some of you speak not English. Maybe some of you are from an Arab background. Some of you are from a Persian background. Some of you are from a Bahasa Malay background. Some of you are Urdu, Urdu-speaking background. The, the language of your grandmother, is it the same as the language of your parents and then your own language? The way in which they spoke Urdu, for example, and you've heard your grandmother speak Urdu, your grandfather speak Urdu, is that the same way you and your friends speak Urdu in school? It's the same language, but has it changed? It has. So some of the words may still be the same, but the way they used to think about it is different, and the way you think about it is completely different. Is that true or no? You know what that means. If the Qur'an, if the Qur'an's language was kept, like the words are exactly what we had from 1400 years ago, it's impossible to think as society changes, as the world around us changes, that language will not experience change at least the way we process the words will not experience change. They will change. The way we think about them will be different. You know, when somebody, for example, I'll give you an easy example because we're, we're on the subject. If 300 years ago, somebody said Israel, 300 years ago to a Muslim, somebody said Israel, certain ideas would come in their head. 300 years later, today in 2016, when I say Israel, there's some ideas that come in your head that probably have to do with the news. They have to do with a geopolitical conflict. They have to do with a state. They have to do with you know, horrific experiences. They, other images come in your mind. But 300 years ago, that same exact word, Israel, when, you, when a Muslim heard it, that never came in their mind. Actually, all that came in their mind is a prophet whose name is Yaqub and his other name is Israel. That's all that came in their mind. So as time changes, the way we even think about a single word changes. Isn't that true? Now, of all the languages in the world, Allah Azza wa Jal chose to reveal His Qur'an in the Arabic language, in the Arabic of the desert, in the Arabic of a society that goes through very little change. You see? 
like there's not a lot of foreigners coming to the Arab lands because it's not exactly a tourist hotspot. You don't exactly come there for good business. A lot of people go, go to the shore cities. A lot of people go to you know, places that have great irrigation. Why? Because the crop is sold, because trade is done, and different cultures meet each other, and languages are influenced by each other, right? I don't want to go too far into a discussion on linguistics, but you'll find, for example, fascinating, in Malaysia, the, the, the Bahasa language is, uh, it has no tense. There is no past tense, or present tense, or future tense. So there's no, you know, went, and goes, and will go. There, there aren't three. It's just one word. It just does the job. And they have little to no prepositions. It's just, if you know the words, you can make a sentence, and it's perfectly fusha. It's like eloquent, bahasa. It's not complicated. Like in Arabic, you have to have the haraka right, and you have to have the mubtada, and the khabar, and the muta'alliq, and the jar, and the majroor, and the mudaf, and the mudaf. Oh my God. In English, you have to have the is, and the was, and the will be, and the tenses, and the passive, and the active. You have all this stuff. None of this complication. It's just nouns. Smack them together. You got yourself a sentence. So good. And the, the conjugations don't change. You know how, for example, we say I go, but we say he goes. When you say he, you can't say he go. You can't say that. But in Bahasa, you could just say it. No changes. And I wondered why that was. And I asked a few professors of the language why that was. He says, because this is a port nation. They're, they're, they're right at the ocean. Traders used to come all the time. And when you do business a lot, you have to just get the deal done. And so the language actually was simplified over time as a result of continuous trade. So it's actually a very base, simple, non-complicated language. On the flip end of it, the less you interact with people, what's going to happen? The more complex and intricate your language is going to become. Uh, and that's actually, case in point, the Arabs of the desert for thousands of years. They're isolated people. Allah chose a very intricate language. And then, by Allah's, by Allah's will, what happened over time? We preserved, not just the Qur'an. This is something Sahaba recognized. So genius. We didn't just preserve the language of the Qur'an, like the words, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. That wasn't the only thing that was necessary to preserve. What was also necessary to preserve is, how did they used to think about these words back in the desert, before Islam became huge? Because once Islam becomes huge, it's not an isolated language anymore. Now the Persians are coming in, the Abyssinians are coming in, the Europeans are coming in, the Chinese are coming in. They're all coming in and they're all going to mix in with the language of Arabic. It's not going to be that pure, untouched language that it used to be in the past. So there was a necessity to preserve the language of the Qur'an also. Why am I saying this to you? Because this language was preserved in a way that pr pretty much no language that's 1500 years old is preserved in history. And it was only preserved because of the Qur'an, because it was part of the preservation of the Qur'an. So when I read, for example, right now, فَإِيَا فَرْهَبُونَ Rahab in Arabic means fear. But khawf also means fear. What's the difference? Well, I'm going to go back to the lexicons of the Arabic language. Ibn al-Faris, you know, I'm going to go to Lisan al-Arab, al-Bahr al-Muhit. I'm going to go to these sources, and they're going to tell me, back in the day, thousands of years ago, the people in the desert used this word this way. I'm not interested in how the guy in Al-Qahira says it today. I, I don't care. Because this has gone through time. I want to know, travel through time, and know how were they using this word back then. Because this book is a timeless standard revealed in a timed language. That the language itself is not timeless. Because language is used by who? It's used by people. So you have to go back to the ancient language. When people don't understand the difference between this, here's what happens. I'm, I'm going to summarize it for you before I tell you what happens. The language of it is ancient. But the lessons of it, and the teachings of it, and the wisdom of it, and the guidance of it is what? It's timeless. In order to understand the timeless lessons, you do have to go back to the ancient. You have to understand how, how this was understood then. And once you're able to understand it in its original context, like, you know, like that standard meter that's preserved in the museum? That's the language of Arabic, the ancient language of Arabic. It's preserved. And you have to go back to it so that the standard never changes. Imagine if that wasn't there. Are words used differently in Arab countries? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it, one word, same exact word, is being used in Egypt a certain way, in Algeria a certain other way, in Morocco another way. Completely different meaning, you know. I re- for example, I came to learn the hard way, uh, the word, the word waliyah in, uh, in classical Arabic is actually a beautiful word. It's wali is for a male and waliyah is for a female. But if a lady's like kind of promiscuous or shady character, then the Egyptians call a waliyah. That's not the original meaning of the word, but that's what they came up with. You understand? So the words can have a... I mean, when you say she's waliyatullah, you're saying something beautiful about a woman. <laughs> you know, she's spiritual, she's connected to God, and here you have a culture that thinks she's... Yeah, I'd stay away. You know, she's a waliyah. Oh, God. You know? <laughs> Subhanallah. So language will change. Anyway, two kinds of knowledge. Worldly and what? Revealed. Worldly and revealed. And if you want to understand the timeless nature of revealed, you have to go back to the standard. The standard itself is timeless. That's what's preserved, the language. Just because the language is ancient, doesn't mean the lessons are ancient. Now, let's come to the modern world and understand something. Humanity today is excelled in which kind of knowledge? Acquired. We have better science now than we've ever had. We have better standards of living than we ever had. We have better trade now than we ever had. We have better understanding of human psychology perhaps, physiology, medicine. What field of life that we haven't touched? You know, we are, we're able to eat foods from around the world without a problem. We're living, we're used to luxuries that people couldn't even dream of. People could not even dream. Just think, put this in perspective for a second. You're 45 minutes late on a flight. They didn't take off. And when they take off, they made an announcement I'm sorry, because of the weather, we're not going to have Wi-Fi on this flight for another extra 30 minutes. And everybody's like, oh. Put this in, you're in a piece of metal flying through the sky, thousands of, you know, thousands of, like, or several miles, thousands of feet above in the air, from one continent to the other, and you're still able to connect to everyone on the planet while you're flying higher than birds, and the guy says, 30 minutes late, sorry. And you're like, oh, God, I hate this airplane. The cushions are just not cushiony enough. Or, you know, <laughs> where are my peanuts? Or, you know, put this in perspective. Like, what were human beings doing a couple of hundred years ago? How were they traveling? How, what, what was their life like? They couldn't even imagine the kinds of luxuries we have today, right? So, so acquired knowledge has gone really far. And you know what's happened as a result? It's gotten so far, it's come so far and so far and so far that a lot of people on, in the world have begun to say, this is all the knowledge I need. All my needs are met through acquired knowledge. I mean, what is this revealed knowledge going to add to my life? I already have a big screen TV. I already have a couch. I already have a PlayStation. I already have a controller. What else is there to life? I mean, why, why should I need this guidance? And it seems like this acquired, this revealed knowledge keeps asking me to do things or asking me not to do things. Why? Because I'll have a better life? No thanks. I already have a better life. I already have everything I want. So I don't really see the benefit of following this revealed knowledge. So for a lot of people, they're not necessarily against religion. They're not against it. They just don't see the point. What what is it going to give me? What is it going to give me that the mall won't? That the movie theater won't? that That the fast food restaurant won't? Every gratification I've ever wanted has been made available to me. Allah Azza wa Jal told Adam alayhi salam, you will make your life better basically by acquired knowledge. عَلَّمَ Adama al but there are two things that will never let go of you, no matter how much acquired knowledge you get. فَمَن تَبِعَ هُدَايَا فَلَا خَوْفٌ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَا هُمْ يَحْسَنُونَ There's not going to be any fear or any grief. Fear and grief will not go away because you have a nice car. Fear and grief will not go away because you have a good salary. Fear and grief will not remove, be removed from you. The fear that you know, your, your, your spouse doesn't love you. The fear that your money's going to run out. The fear for your safety. The fear that all of your work will be going to waste. The sadness that you lost something. 
these emotions that human beings experience, you know, there are, there, this, I have to go back to the statistics because when I, I looked at these statistics, it was the late 90s. In the late 90s, the highest suicide rate in America was in the richest five counties. I couldn't wrap my head around it. How are these people who have everything imaginable? These people have the kinds of homes that when you drive by, you just have to pull over and, whoa, that is nice. That's what you have to do. How are they with the highest suicide rates in the world? They can't escape their grief. They can't escape. And, you know, there were, there, were, there were musicians that went platinum and, like, they were in the billions, not even the millions. They were, like, rich beyond imagination, right? And they were afraid of the fact that they'd be number two on the charts and they'd lose their number one spot and they'd lose sleep over it. There are documentaries made about actors and musicians, entertainers that you would think have the best life. And they're constantly on drugs or constantly overdosing on alcohol because they can't deal with reality. They hate it. They're miserable. Miserable. How? There's, there's a hole inside the human being that can only be filled by revealed knowledge. It cannot be filled by anything else. Now, here's the thing. If you have revealed knowledge then you know what's going to happen? Basically, you'll find a balance between both of these. You'll, ba- you'll find a balance between the best of this world and the best of the next, the, the guidance, right? Put it to you this way. Let's say you love chocolate, like I do. And it's just iftar time. You start downing chocolate upon chocolate upon chocolate upon chocolate. If you eat too much chocolate, is it going to be good for you? Health-wise, no. But actually, stomach-wise also. And pretty soon, you might even throw up if you, if you don't stop. It's not, there's a certain amount that's good for you. Beyond that, even what you love is bad for you. What is the purpose of guidance? Guidance teaches us, acquire in this world. Consume in this world. Here are some things that are not good for you. And even the things that are good for you, here's the amount that you'll keep, you'll stay happy. If you try to go over this, you're going to end up hurting yourself or somebody else. The only breaks that can be put on the human being are from revealed knowledge. Otherwise, we don't know where to stop. We keep on going and consuming until we even hurt ourselves. These two work hand in hand. Now, this was the balance that was taught to Adam a.s. Now, Adam a.s. came, tried to live by that balance. Then much after, Allah mentions the next major messenger in the history of the world, Nuh a.s. came, tried to teach that same balance. He didn't have a long list of prohibitions. He just tried to get people to live a good life here and prepare for even a better life there if they can just follow Allah's guidance. And messengers after messengers after messengers came. How many people accepted the call of those messengers? Very, very few. For every messenger, very few people. And the majority of the people didn't accept. And even when the nations were destroyed, and I told you yesterday why nations were destroyed. Once the nations were destroyed, and a new, new, these few people that have survived, now they're trying to live by guidance, right? The problem was, even they, after a few generations, deteriorated again. Things went south again, and then again, and then, and this kept on happening. So Allah Azza wa Jal decided that not only should there be individuals that are role models. One person, a messenger, being a role model is not enough. It is time that humanity has a much bigger role model, an entire nation. A whole nation should be a role model. We should show the world, because you know, every time, did the majority believe or minority believe? The minority believed. And the minority cannot set an example for the majority because they are not visible to the entire majority. Allah wanted a society where the majority believes and they live by guidance and they show how you can have the best of the acquired knowledge and the best of revealed knowledge so you can have the best of this life. Fi dunya hasana wa fil akhirati hasana. That's what He wanted to show. And so of all the nations, He chose from the, from the descendants of Ibrahim alayhi salam, His son Ishaq, and of his son Ya'qub, Ya'qub alayhi salam, his other name is Israel. Allah Azza wa Jal gave a special favor to Ya'qub and his children that among his children, every generation would have a prophet so that they can cultivate and build and build and build and have a nation that can show the world the model of what it means to live by guidance. And for the first time, Allah, you could say, he suspended a rule. The rule was when a nation disobeys a prophet, or rebels, what happens to that nation? 
they get destroyed. But the Israelites, Allah said, no, I'm going to let them make mistakes, but I'll send another prophet and another and another until they reform themselves and they remain in place. I will not destroy them, even if they disbelieve in a prophet. Even if they disregard a prophet, I will keep giving them prophet after prophet after prophet. And they kept on coming. And as a matter of fact, Surah Al-Baqarah will tell us, they even killed prophets. They even, and still Allah sent them prophets. No, I'm going to give them a chance. I'm going to give them a chance. Now, what bigger favor from Allah do you want that He gave you a prophet, number one, that's a huge favor already, and you killed that prophet, and He still gave you another prophet. And then you killed that prophet, and He still gave you another prophet. If that were to happen with any other nation, <laughs> they'd be done. So now, what is the role of the Israelites? That original teaching to Adam, acquired knowledge, Revealed knowledge. You will be the, live the balance of those two things. Then as history passed, the one nation that was chosen to be a model for all other nations, they will show the world how they can live the best life in this world while still abiding by Allah's guidance and not going near what Allah has forbidden. That was supposed to be the Israelites, the chosen people. That was supposed to be done them from the from the descendants of Ibrahim alayhi salam. So now we're going from the from Adam alayhi salam to the next major chapter in human history, the Israelites, where it's not just a person, it's an entire nation that should represent God. Bani Israel, children of Israel. Israel, by the way, the word Isra, uh, uh, it comes from the it's close to the, the the word in Arabic asir. It's a Hebrew term for slave. Israel means slave of Allah. Il is the Hebrew term for God. So you'll see Jibra'il, Israel, Mika'il. These il at the end, they represent Allah from the Hebrew origin. Okay, so it's Bani Abdullah in a sense. And Ya'qub alayhi salam's nickname is Abdullah. His, his nickname is Israel. Israel, by the way, is a noble term. It's a beautiful term. So now Allah is going to, from here on, talk to the Israelites directly. I want you to notice something in the flow of the ayat. The last ayah was, Allah was talking to Adam. Leaving Jannah. فَإِمَّا يَأْتِيَنَّكُمْ مِنِّي هُدًا فَمَنْ تَبِعَهُ دَيَا فَلَا خَوْفٌ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَا هُمْ يَحْسَنُونَ And so Allah is talking to Adam, and He includes His children, and in the very next ayah, He's talking to the Israelites. In this, it's like in the same conversation. He fast-forwards through... Oh, sorry. It didn't come. Okay. So it fast-forwards through history, and goes straight to the children of Israel. And Allah Azza wa Jal says, يَا بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلِ Sons of Israel, Make mention of the favor that I've done upon you. At least acknowledge the favor that I've done to you. What is the? I just mentioned to you what favor He did to them. I did. I, Allah hasn't even mentioned the crimes. I mentioned the crimes. They killed prophets. They disregarded the guidance. But the favor Allah did to them, He had not done to anyone. As a matter of fact, that's the next biggest favor that was done after Adam Adam was chosen above all the, all the other creation to represent Allah's will freely. And to live by Allah's will freely. And then after that, this nation was chosen to represent. You are the next, you're the fulfillment of the legacy of Adam You're supposed to be that nation. So other nations will come and see you and say, Wow, we want to live like this. You guys have peace, harmony, tranquility. Brotherhood, justice in your society that we've never seen before. We want to be just like you. That was the point. This is why you were chosen. Now, as I say this, the last, the, the, the last couple of introductory points before we get into the passage, probably get into the passage tomorrow, but th- this is absolutely critical. The, Isra- the Jews of Medina were thousands of years after Musa salam. The Jews of Musa salam back in the day, Many, many, many thousands of years ago. And then now you have thousands of years later some Jews living in Medina that the Prophet sees and meets with, right? When the ayah says, Ya Bani Israel, children of Israel, who's he talking to? Obviously, the people listening to him are the Jews of who? Of Medina. And he's going to say to them later on, he's going to say to them, I parted the sea for you, I, ha- I put a cloud over you. I provided you manna and salwa, I provided you food in the middle of the desert. I made 12 springs come out for you in the, in, from the rock, when Musa hit the, hit the rock. He says, you, 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 I did this for you, this for you, this for you, this, and you changed the book, and you didn't listen. When he says that, the question arrives, it wasn't them, they didn't do it. 
It was some ancestors of theirs from thousands of years ago. Do Muslims believe in original sin? Are we held accountable for the sins of our fathers? If we did, we'd be like the Christian people who believe humanity is to be held hung to dry for the sin of their father Adam. We're born into sin. We're not, we don't believe we're born into sin. Then why is it that you find some Muslims, when they talk about the Jews of even our time, or the Jews of the time of Medina, and they say, you know these people, look at what they did with Musa alayhi salam. And I'm like, do you all of a sudden believe in original sin? Are you honestly holding them responsible for what their ancestors did with Musa alayhi salam? Can you fairly do that and say that, and not believe in original sin? We have a double standard. For some people, their hatred of the Jewish people goes so far, they say, why shouldn't I hate them? Look at how much they hate us. Thank you. So your attitudes and your emotions, if they're determined by your reaction to other people, then what's the point of this guidance? Our emotions, our attitudes are supposed to submit to the word of Allah. They cannot be determined by your frustrations or your anger. As angry as you are, your anger must submit to revelation. And if it doesn't, then this is the wrong religion for you. This is not, this is not the right religion for you. What is, Allah, what is Allah teaching us by talking to them as though they, they're the ones? Why, why do that then? The question arises. See, what happens is, I'll talk about the Muslims, because really this conversation is about the Muslims, it's not about the Jews. Name some, th- some things you remember from Islamic history. When we talk about Islamic history, we talk about Umar, we talk about Abu Bakr Siddiq, Salah al-Din, right? Salah al-Din comes to mind. We talk about Andalus and the renaissance of Islam, the famous Islamic philosophers and scientists, and the great golden age of Islam. You probably, if you don't know a lot about Islamic history, you've at least heard these few things. How awesome we were. If you look at Islamic history, it's been a, it's about 1500 years now. Is it all awesome? Are there embarrassing times in Islamic history where we were the furthest from the teachings of Allah and His Messenger Are there moments in history that are truly humiliating and humbling for us? Yes. But when we talk about our history, what do we like to talk about? Ah, the golden era. And we don't say, they were amazing. We say, we were amazing. We conquered we challenged the Romans, and we challenged the Persians, and when we went into the battle, we, really, we. That wasn't us. That was them. Those are people that are long gone, dude. That was, you weren't in no battlefield. But we are one ummah with them. Acha, you're one ummah with them. I see. Are you also one ummah with the people who conspired with the non-believers to kill hundreds if not thousands of Muslims in Islamic history? Are you also one with those who killed each other? Muslims who killed and fought each other? And that's not even ancient history, that's even happening now. Does anybody like to quote where Muslims are spilling each other's blood and say, we kill each other. (laughs) We have destroyed Masajid. Is that a part of our history too? It is. But you know what happens to people that are self-righteous? They like to erase parts of their history that are embarrassing, that they should learn from, that they should not, that, so they don't repeat those mistakes. And they only like to highlight parts of their history that make them feel better about themselves. Because that way they can say, we were pretty awesome. This was actually the disease of the Israelites. They used to speak of their noble lineage. We're the people of Abraham and Isaac and you know, Jacob and Joseph and all of these incredible prophets and revelation and God has favored us and He's done so much for us. And look at how He dealt with the Pharaoh in our favor. And we celebrate this noble... And it is a noble history. It in fact is a noble history. But the only problem with this is you like to say, we, 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 we. Allah says, fine, I'll say you. You want to you wanna put yourself together with them? I will. But when I will tell you history, I'll tell you the chapters you like to skip. And then I'll say, that's you too, isn't it then? If you want to take ownership of the glorious parts of your history and associate yourself with it delusionally, then, then take, take ownership of the embarrassing parts of your history too. And that is why he addresses them directly. He says, if you're so proud of the favor that was done to your ancestors, as though it's a favor done to you, then why don't you demonstrate what, you, what your reaction should be? 
then you should be like those who the favor was done to. You should live up to that model. And through doing this, Allah is teaching us a very, Muslims, He's teaching us a very important part of our psyche. We cannot blindly lean on history and say that we have a glorious past if only we were in the times of Umar radiallahu anhu. Oh, ho, 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 ho. listen, if you were at the time of Umar, times wouldn't have been as good because you were there. Because <laughs> you would have been just as useless there, ex- excess baggage that you are now. We are to learn from our history, not just the good parts, but the bad parts. The bad parts. This is an important acknowledgement that the Muslims have to make. We're constantly shifting blame on others. We're constantly only highlighting that which helps our already low self-esteem. Anything that will put the other down, we will use. You know, But anything that will actually reflect the mirror, we can't take it. Sometimes I give khutbahs about the corruption within the ummah. I get a lot of emails, especially from Muslim countries. Brother, why do you highlight things that are bad about us? You make us feel bad about ourselves. You should highlight things that are making us feel good about ourselves. It's like, I give a lot of feel good about yourself khutbahs too, but you know you really don't like looking in the mirror, do you? You really don't like it. But brother, don't say those things. The non-Muslims are listening. They will know that we do these bad things. You're, if you're that embarrassed, don't do them. Don't do them. The fact that we have, we have no good a model to show, that is actually what Allah highlighted. You cannot be proud of your legacy and then not represent any of its teachings. That's how Allah addressed the Israelites. The other beautiful thing that's happened here, I told you from the beginning, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا سَوَاءٌ عَلَيْهِمْ مِنَ النَّاسِ مَنْ يَقُولُوا آمَنَّا بِاللَّهِ وَبِالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَمَا هُمْ بِمُؤْمِنِينَ I told you there was an element of the Jewish community that was hardcore disbeliever. There was an element of them that would come and say, we do believe. But they weren't really believers. Allah called them out. And now Allah is saying, okay, it's enough. I tried to keep you minan nas, minan nas. I kept it general. It's time to tell you directly I'm talking about you. I'm talking, it's children of Israel. اُذْكُرُوا ni'mati. Make mention, acknowledge the favor that I have favored you with. And this was important to mention to the Jewish people for another reason. They had this strange dichotomy inside them. There was this almost schizophrenia inside their mind. On the one hand, they believed that they were the chosen people by God. On the other hand, they had this aggression towards God. Why did He put us through this? Why did He put us in exile? Why did He take us out of Israel? Why has He cursed us? Why is He punishing us? Why are we humiliated? Why can't we have the glory days back again? So on the one hand, they were proud of being Jewish. On the other hand, they were really like complaining towards God that He's forgotten us or something. This, I've, I didn't realize, and I don't blame the people of today, the Jewish you know, people of today, for these things. Allah is commenting on what happened before. Maybe some of this exists today, but it's not for us to judge. I was on a flight one time with a couple, old Jewish couple. And I was, this was a flight to Las Vegas. I swear it was a Quran conference. But it was a, but they really have one. So, so I was going there on this flight, and this Jewish couple is next to me, and... Um, they were actually doing some prayers before the flight. Now, I know why I'm going to Vegas, and I'm just really curious why these very observing, you know, old couple, why are they going to Vegas? So I said, so what are you going to do in Vegas? Well, of course, gamble. And I said, so I just felt curious. I'm just going to say, hey, so is, is your religious teaching, is there something against gambling in your faith? I mean, I noticed that you guys were praying, so I'm just curious. And I had my mushaf out. I was reciting at the time. I said, like, so what, you, what are you reading? I was like, Quran. Oh, we, have, we believe in a book as well. And they were just were trying to you know, break the ice. And I said, so is there, is there any teaching against gambling in your faith? Oh, yes, of course there is. And I was like, there, there is? Yeah, yes, there is. But you guys are, I don't mean to pry, but you guys are, well, where was God when the Holocaust happened? And where was he when? And they just went off on God. For like 20 minutes, they just went off on God. And then they came back and said, well, we love our faith. I was like, there's a real, like, I don't know which like, a side of a coin you flip. You turn into somebody else. For a second, you love God. And the next minute, you hate God because he messed you guys up. And where was he? He, didn't, he wasn't there for us. 
And the first, when I asked you, why are you going gambling? You said, where was God when we needed him? That's your answer for why you're going gambling? The Holocaust? Is the... Why? But this dichotomy exists. And you know what? This is a sickness that's not a Jewish sickness. This is a sickness in the minds of those who don't internalize faith, any faith. This is a sickness that can afflict the Muslims. They can openly disobey Allah. On the one hand, they can say they love Allah. They love Rasul. They, they celebrate Islam. We love Eid. But when it comes to the commandments, then other, another side of you comes out, almost like you're not even Muslim. The kinds of criticisms you're ready to make. The kinds of things you're willing to say about Allah and His book and His messenger. You wouldn't even expect those from a non-Muslim. It's a split inside of a person. This is what's called cognitive dissonance inside of a person. That's what existed inside them. So Allah decides to call them out. Be grateful. Make mention of the favor that I've showered you with. Now what the ultimate favor I tell you, the biggest of all the favors for the, for the Jews of Medina, specifically because the audience is who? The Jews of Medina. You know what the biggest favor was? The Torah was actually entirely erased. It was destroyed completely. And it was re- restored from memory. And from the Jewish history, certain prophets helped restore the Torah. Imagine the entire Qur'an being erased. And then it was restored. It's much easier for us because we're hufal. We have hufal among us. But they didn't have that. And it was brought back into writing. The Torah was brought back into writing. And parts of it mentioned the coming of the last messenger by name Muhammad. By name. And that was restored. And they had it. The greatest favor of all that you get to be the first to recognize Muhammadur Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam not based on some new evidence that he will show you you already have all the evidence you need you're hiding the evidence that I've given you make mention of the favor I've given you that I allowed you to retain evidence of the final messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam that you read about him in your Torah and you can recognize him like you see the words manifest you know, like we read about Allah creating mountains and you look at a mountain in front of you, the mountain is the tafsir of the ayah. They would read about Muhammad Rasulullah wasallam, and they see Rasulullah right in front of them. That is the favor of Allah on them. And then, since they didn't, what was the, what was their, what was the promise Allah took for them, from them that when they would find that messenger, what would they do? They'd immediately believe in him. So Allah says, bi'ahdi, Fulfill my promise. Fulfill my promise. It's time. He's in front of you. I will fulfill my promise to you. My promise to you was, when the final messenger comes, Allah will guarantee him victory. And so if you're with him, you will be part of what? The victory. And that victory, by the way, it came. That victory was guaranteed. And the Jewish people were actually suppressed. They were dispersed. They were oppressed. And they were waiting for the days of victory to come. Allah says, my promise to you. The, the, you know, the dispersed people of Israel, the people of the diaspora. My promise to you. The time to fulfill my promise to the Israelite people has come. This messenger is here. Follow him and I shall fulfill my promise to you. This is the same promise they made reference to time and time again in their Bible. And Allah Azza wa Jal just tells them directly, it's time, let's go. The victory is here for you. Allah will say later on in Surah Al-Baqarah, وَكَانُوا مِنْ قَبْلُ يَسْتَفْتِحُونَ عَلَى الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا They used to fight with the other tribes, and they used to lose in battle. And when they would lose in battle, they would say, you know, all of our rabbis have been giving sermons, the last messenger is almost here. And when he comes, we're gonna believe in him. And you know what? God has guaranteed him victory. So you, got, you guys won this time, but you watch, it's coming. All the signs are here. Every, every Saturday khutbah is about it. Because they don't have Friday khutbah. Right? And they were waiting desperately. And Allah says, here it is. Here it is. And so at the end of it, when they don't listen to this final messenger, when they don't accept this final messenger, Allah Azza wa concludes the ayah by saying, وَإِيَّا farhabun." Be terrified. Be, be you know, overwhelmed in fear. Only and only and only of me. The, and iyaya farhabu ni. The me is twice. It's once once iyaya, then ni at the end. And 
Rahban and Ruhban actually also in Arabic means to lose interest in worldly things. Be, lose interest in all things only because of me. What is Allah commenting on? You are not accepting him because of some worldly reasons. There's a, wor- there's a material reason why you're not accepting him. You need to come back and secure your, you know, secure your relationship with me first and foremost. It's very beautiful that Allah is telling them to accept the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. But He's saying the problem isn't that you find Him unconvincing. The problem is you're not interested enough in Allah. You're not close enough to Allah. Your heart is still in, in the world. You're still too material. So what is that material gain? That's what I'm going to conclude with now. What is that material gain that's keeping them from accepting the final messenger. Why would Allah say, وَإِيَّا farhabun"? Be only afraid of me, be only terrified of me, and be, lose interest in the world because of me. What interest in the world do they have? The Jewish people are a religious people. And a religious people usually have a religious hierarchy. So there are people that are like priests, rabbis, we have muftis, imams, faqis, du'at, etc. The religious leadership, yeah? The religious leadership is a, a place of great influence. Okay, so when a khatib speaks, when a, you know, and there, in the, here we have a couple of hundred people, but in the Muslim world, when a khatib is giving a khutbah, there could be tens of thousands of people, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people in one gathering, right? So what he says has a lot of influence on a lot of people. And it's also happened that if they want to ignite a fire from the mimbar, if they say something, there could be a riot after Jum'ah, it's possible. They have that kind of influence over people. So you have to understand, religious leaders don't just have religious influence, they also have social influence and political influence. Because whenever you have a large sum of people interested in what you have to say and your comments, then you yield a lot of power. Whether you realize it or not, you're in a social and political place of responsibility. Okay, So you you have to say your words very carefully. Now, when you're in that position of responsibility, that first of all, it's a, it's a kind of power. And the thing is, it's hard to give up power. Power is quite a drug. You know when people have more money they can ever spend, when they become billionaires, you know what they become interested in? Power. Donald Trump. I mean, what's he going to get? Oh, the, the, the salary of a president is nothing. Compared to what he has, is nothing. Why is he interested in power? Because money's already done. Now it's time for power. That's the next thing is power. It's, it's an addiction. For people who don't have money, they don't even have that drug yet. They're like, I want power. No, no, you don't. You just want money. But once you have more money than you can ever spend, then you become interested in what? And then you get interested in power. That's, that's the next stage. These people, the, the, the rabbis, they were actually the wealthiest class too. They fed off of the people too. And then on top of that, they were in a position of great political power. If they were to accept the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, then all of a sudden, their leadership, their pulpit, their audience, everything disappears. And so does their power, their control, their influence, their respect. They go from being teachers to the community to being students of the Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And actually, not just students, freshmen, new students. So back of the line. You get to sit, you know, you're the one who knows the least. Abu Bakr Siddiq knows the most. Umar bin Khattab knows the most. You guys are new. You have to work your way up. Who's going to give that up? Who's going to give that up? You know, the, and this is not, again, this is not a commentary on the Jewish people. It's religious psychology. It's hard for a grand mufti, for a great alim, for a seasoned teacher to sit in the lecture of another scholar. It hurts. And even when they sit, you know what they're thinking? I would have done it better. And he quoted three ayahs. I would have quoted like five. Oh, he totally missed that point. And he led the prayer, but his tajweed was just off. You're not sitting as a student. You're sitting as a critic. Because you're too used to being in that chair. Right? So you, don't, you can't stand that chair on the floor. You can't stand it. They were too addicted to that position of leadership. Couldn't let it go. That's why they couldn't accept the Prophet And Allah comments that you're serving the religion not for God. You're serving the religion for yourselves. You're only serving it for yourselves. Your pride, your ego, your personal well-being, 
your self-importance is furthered through the, the sticker, the label of religion. But you're not in service to Allah. You need to come back to Allah first. And then he says, And believe what I've sent, what I've sent down. Confirming what is with you. You already have it with you. <laughs> I know you, I kept it preserved in your books. I know you have it. And you've read it. And it's confirming what's right in front of you, the Qur'an. And you're still hiding it. You should believe it because you're terrified of me. And you've lost interest in the world. And the only reason you won't is because you're, you're too dunyawi. You're still lost in this dunya. Subhanallah. It's such a scathing, direct criticism of the rabbi class, and you would think, this is anti-Semitic, this is wrong, he shouldn't be doing this. How can the Qur'an speak like this? They are the, you know, this is unacceptable, politically incorrect. Let me tell you, this kind of language mimics the language of Jesus in the Bible when he spoke to the rabbis. Actually, it's much softer. Jesus is much more harsh. Isa alayhi salam, whatever's recorded of him in the Bible when he spoke to the rabbis, oh man, he did not hold back. His speeches would probably get censored if they were on TV today. The way he spoke to the rabbis in the Bible. Whatever's recorded of it now, in the New Testament. The Qur'an t- picks up from the same, because you rejected Isa alayhi salam, the final messenger that was sent to you, that was specifically for you. Now you lost it. You know, if, I, I told you yesterday that there's guidance and miracles. Remember that? Bani Israel always had guidance, constantly had guidance. You know, new nations are given miracles. You don't need to give a Muslim nation miracles. They already have guidance. They, they just want guidance. The last messenger sent to them was Isa salam, who from the beginning of his life to the time he's taken up into the heavens is miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Once you have miracles, there's no excuse for you not to accept. Not to accept. Now I told you yesterday, when miracles come and they're not accepted, what happens to that nation? Yeah, but Allah didn't destroy Bani Israel, did He? Even though they rejected who? After seeing the miracles, they should have been destroyed. Allah did them a favor and didn't destroy them still. He still didn't destroy them. And then He allowed them to survive centuries to the point where the final messenger has come. The very least what He will do, you have denied the messenger with so many miracles, especially sent to you, no more messengers to you. Now it's time to fulfill the promise of Ismail and Ibrahim. Now I'll get a messenger from this line, Muhammad Rasulullah and you better accept him. No more for you, because I gave you everything that could have been given. All the messengers that you could have been given, you didn't appreciate. Why should I give you another? You shouldn't get any more. Now on the other side. And yet the same pride kept them. It kept them. They couldn't do it. So Allah says, وَآمِنُوا بِمَا أَنزَلْتُ Believe in what I have sent down. Inshallah ta'ala, I'm highlighting this to all of you. Because later on, as we, as we travel through the surah, now we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. Because this, this, the criticism of the Israelites, there are some lessons to be drawn from them. But I believe in this study, you really only appreciate it if you see the flow. And you see one thing connect to the next, to the next, to the next. We're going to get to a point where we're going to ask the question, you know, well, Allah does say that everybody will go to Jannah. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَالَّذِينَ هَادُوا وَالنَّصَارَى وَالصَّابِئِينَ وَنَامَنَا بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَعَمِلَ صَالِحًا Very famous ayah of Baqarah. Those who believe, those who were Jewish, those who were Christian, Sabians, whoever believed in God in the last day, so long as they did good deeds, uh, believed and did good deeds, there's no fear, no grief for them. They can, be, they can go to Jannah too. Right? And some people have used that ayah to say, well, you see, Quran is saying everybody's okay. You don't have to become Muslim. Quran is saying Jewish, Jews are fine, Christians are fine, Sabians are fine. You know, it didn't say you have to believe in the Quran. We'll explore that claim as we go. The first call made to the Israelites is believe in this final revelation. You should be the first. You should be the first. Why should you be the first? Because you already ha- you're already waiting for it. And you already have evidence for it in your book. Nobody else had it like you did. So you should have been first in line. And that's why Allah will say, وَلَا تَكُونُوا أَوَّلَ كَافِرٍ بِهِ Which is the half point in this ayah that I'll leave you with. لَا تَكُونُوا أَوَّلَ كَافِرٍ بِهِ Don't be the first to disbelieve in it. How You should have been the first to what? Believe it. You're the best in position to believe in it. Don't be first in line to disbelieve. You shouldn't be the opposite of what you were meant to be. Subhanallah. That is Allah calling on them for the favor that He did to them. May Allah Azza wa make us appreciate His book and really honestly make us appreciate what a gift it is that we believe in the Qur'an. 
because it wasn't easy for so many people to believe in this book. This gift that Allah has given us, if the Israelites were told, make mention of the favor I've done to you, just because they were going to be ready to accept the Qur'an, how much more of a mention of the favor of Allah should we be doing because we have this Qur'an? Because Allah has given it to us. Because we were, so many of us were born in Muslim families with this Qur'an. You know? We have to really renew our relationship with this book. If, if, you don't, if we don't do that in this month, then there's no hope. Honestly, there's no hope. My, my, my intention in this series, my hope in this series, why are we doing these durus before taraweeh? Why? My hope in this series is by the time you hit, get hit with the dars of the Qur'an, 30 days in a row, something happens inside you that says, I have to have a relationship with this book. This book gives me something that nothing else can give me. That's not me. That's not because I'm giving a dars. It's something in the Qur'an, guys. It's something in the Qur'an that you will not get anything. Nothing else will fill that gap. Nothing else. The heavens were stopped so the Qur'an could come down. This is not a small thing. This is not just any book. This is the word, final word of Allah. The only major event left is the day of judgment. This is the greatest thing to happen in all of humanity's history. And the only great thing left is the world coming to an end. Appreciate what you have, what I have. May Allah Azza wa make us love this book like it deserves to be loved, and may He make us grateful for this Qur'an like we should be. Barakallahu li wa lakum, wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.